is Wellness 101, brought to you by the Institute of Natural Health, your home for common sense science-based health care. Here's your host, Dr. T.J. Williams. Hey, and welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Dr. T.J. With me, as always, is Aaron. Hi. All chipper and happy and excited across the room. Um, so today we are going to talk about um, we're going to talk about some over-the-counter medications again. We've done some we've done a, a show on over-the-counter medications in the past, and I we've we got some really positive feedback from that, and we want to talk about some more. So. Right. That's which ones do. you should be concerned about. Yeah. Well, I mean, spoiler alert, you should probably be concerned about all of them, but which ones we're going to talk that, about. That, that was a spoiler alert. Right? <laughs> we're not even a minute in. She's already throwing spoilers out yeah. there. Worry about them all, ladies and gentlemen. Worry about them all. So, um, like I said before, and I, I just want to reiterate this just in case this is your first time um, listening to the show. So, over-the-counter medications are extremely lucrative. Um, the... Americans now remind remind you there are about 320 million Americans in this country. Those 320 million Americans, every man, woman and child make 2.9 billion trips to the pharmacies to purchase over-the-counter medications every single year and spend 34.3 billion dollars doing so. Whoa. Right? Like I said, this is this is crazy how much we consume over-the-counter medications. That's nine. Um, that's nine trips per man, woman, and child to buy medications. Now, and last time I checked, our son hasn't made a trip to the pharmacy to buy an over-the-counter medication, nor have you or I. It just that's just I mean, so somebody out there is making up the difference for us not making those right. trips to do that. So that's it's frightening when we really put it into perspective about how many how many times people are going to buy this stuff and how much we're truly buying. It's just mind boggling. But today we're going to talk about, you know, we we over the counter medication. Everybody thinks that but because it's over the counter, it must be safe. And it's so far from the truth. It's it's not accurate. There are dangers. There are side effects. A lot of these over-the-counter medications were once prescription medications that, you know, in a minute commercial had 10 seconds of benefits and 45 seconds of, of side effects, just like every other pharmaceutical commercial out there. There's They just have to list these things. And so all of a sudden now, we don't have anyone policing what we're getting at all and looking at potential interactions or potential side effects we're just thinking oh well i it doesn't matter that i'm taking 13 prescription medications i can add this one or two or 10 over the counter medications to my to my regimen this is but this causes problems there's side effects and 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 dangers to this so i just we just want people to be aware that there are problems out there with this and today we're going to we're going to beat up on aspirin a little bit um the, a lot of people have, you know, public health officials, doctors, authorities have recommended a low dose aspirin um, for preventing cardiovascular disease. That's not true anymore. That's not the case. Um, the 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 standard of care now is that you do not take a low dose aspirin as a preventive. You take low dose aspirin if you have had an event or under the direction of your doctor because you 
have some other thing going on. Um, there's a lot of research that has said, no, this is a problem. So in 2018, there was a study published that was funded by the National Institutes of Health that found that aspirin use has no beneficial effects on healthy lifespan. And they classified that as life free of dementia or persistent physical disability in older adults. So they're saying that this stuff should not be taking, you shouldn't be taking this as a preventive. It has no benefits for healthy individuals. Now, that being said, I'm not really sure how healthy we are as Americans because I, I see what's going on out there and we are a sick, sick country. But it doesn't necessarily mean that aspirin is beneficial for you. So in people that have pre-existing things going on uh, with their cardiovascular system, either a cardiovascular condition or, or problem, there may be protective effects. But at what cost? Again, at what cost? This isn't necessary. Just because it's good for good for the goose doesn't mean it's good for the gander. Just because you have had a cardiovascular event doesn't mean that your spouse who hasn't should rush out and start taking an aspirin as a preventive. That's that's not that's not entirely accurate. Um, the the supposed benefits of aspirin in an at risk individual has to be weighed against the known health risks of the drug, which includes things like increased bleeding, increased stroke, um, brain bleeding, which basically is a stroke, right? Right. That that these are the things. So these these problematic effects aren't just they aren't just happening in adults. So taking an aspirin, prenatal aspirin use is associated with increased risk of fetal testicular dysfunction and cerebral palsy. That's a lot of people out there are taking uh, an aspirin because their OB told them to take an aspirin while they're pregnant. Right. And yet here we are with potential prenatal effects that, I mean, nobody is aware of. No one knows this stuff. I bet you that those of you out there listening, you had no idea that those were possible side effects. Right. I, I, I can pretty much guarantee it. So how does it, how does this happen? That it's, it's very similar to how things work with ibuprofen. Um, if you if you didn't hear our show on ibuprofen, go back and listen to that. I kind of explained the mechanism. The aspirin changes how we make hormones. Um, it creates this oxidative stress, which stimulates this whole endocannabinoid system that is huge in our development of of our and our and the function of our brain. We have this this system in our body called the endocannabinoid system. It's very similar to our immune system. And so this stuff stimulates this thing and and creates problems, right? So aspirin isn't, isn't uh, you know, the, the harmless drug that we once thought it was. Right. And there's at least the potential that it could be causing harm. Yeah. The, there's, a, there's a huge potential that it could be that it could be causing harm. So what do you do instead? That's a that's a very good question. So what do you do instead of aspirin? Well, I mean, if we're looking for cardiovascular health benefits, because that's why people are taking low-dose aspirin, right? Let's talk about things that we can do to benefit our, our heart. What about this – is, this is earth-shattering. This is groundbreaking. What about if we ate an unprocessed, nutrient-dense diet? 
What if we eliminated all the processed foods out of there? We got rid of all the refined carbohydrates, the white sugars, the white flours, and increased our consumption of colorful fruits, vegetables, free-range organic meats, seafood, grass-fed, grass-fed products, um, non-starchy vegetables, right? Healthy nuts, healthy fats. What if we did that? There's one. Changing our diets, a huge one. Another one is sunshine. Just getting out and getting sun exposure helps us helps our bodies produce vitamin D. It helps us also to produce nitric oxide, both of which improve heart health, right? Getting 15-ish minutes of sun exposure on your face. You want sunlight on your face. Nothing between your face and the sun except a few thousand miles, right? That's how we do it. Get as much of our, our limbs exposed as possible. We want to expose ourselves to sun so we can absorb the sunlight, so we can convert things to make the vitamin D in ourselves. Another thing that we can do to help heart health instead of taking aspirin is to exercise. My gosh, we don't exercise enough. We are a lazy, lazy society. Two-thirds of the country is overweight or obese. We are not exercising. We are sedentary. It's a no-brainer. We got to get 30 minutes or more of exercise every single day. It doesn't matter, rain or shine. Get the exercise. Well, you know, at least four days a week. I mean, at least be aiming for 30 minutes Well, a day. yeah, if you're completely sedentary and haven't done yeah. anything, you go out and try to walk seven days a week, you're probably going to be sore and you're going to be cussing at, at TJ, your, your, your friend here, right? So- yeah, get off the couch and start moving. Walk yourself in and then get yourself to where you're doing this stuff every single day. And another thing that we can do is improve our gut health. There is a lot of research that shows that the gut microbiome influences cardiovascular disease. In fact, there are advanced cardiovascular tests that when these levels are elevated, it's levels that are taken from from gut and liver dysfunction. And when those things are elevated, we see increased risk of developing cardiovascular events. This is a big deal. This is showing direct correlation between gut health and cardiovascular health, right? How do we, imp- how do we improve gut health? I'm a huge fan of food sensitivity diets, following your food sensitivities. Eat the foods that your, that your system needs and your system is okay with. It's not making you mad. But also anti-inflammatory things. If you're not going to do food sensitivity testing, anti-inflammatory foods, foods that are rich in fiber, fermented foods, do everything that we can. Address any kind of gut dysbiosis that you may have going on. You can test for this stuff. Figure it out. It's not that difficult. You can, you can find it. Find a functional me- uh, medicine practitioner in your area and help have them help you Figure out what's going on. If you can't find one, call us. We'll help you. Right. Right? That's what we're here for. We will help you. We can get you the testing that's necessary to find out how dysfunctional is your gut, what needs to be worked on, what needs to be healed to improve your overall health and help you not need to take a daily baby aspirin. Right. And if your doctor's recommending it, you really need to be thinking about, you know, what the side effects are and is this something that you absolutely need because I know a lot of people you know there are a lot who have just decided to take it on their own but a lot of them are doing it under the direction of a physician that's true so and most of them had no idea that there are potential side effects that's right 
All right, we got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about the safety of your over-the-counter medications. You're listening to Wellness 101. You're listening to Wellness 101, brought to you by the Institute of Natural Health. For more information, visit them online at theinstituteofnaturalhealth.com or by phone, 314-293-8123. And welcome back to the show, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just tuning in, we are talking today um, about the safety of over-the-counter medications, and we just spent quite a bit of time talking about um, aspirin um, and and its dangers and why why you want to avoid that. Um, I want to want to switch gears a little bit and talk about decongestants. So, a lot of people take decongestants. Um, the main ingredient that we're talking about and in, in that most decongestants contain would be pseudoephedrine. Um, this stuff creates a lot of problems in people that have um, hypertension or high blood pressure or people that have it and don't know they have it. That's the that's the really difficult one is when someone doesn't know they have high blood pressure because that's not something you feel. That's not that's that you don't have, you know, the the you know, your skin doesn't turn purple because you have high blood pressure or anything crazy like that. It's just one of these things that happens. And so there are about 75 million Americans that have hypertension. And half of those people don't have the condition under control or they're not diagnosed. So we're talking a lot of individuals out there that that have hypertension. And trust me, they don't have it under control because I can't tell you how many people come into our office and we're like, we know they filled out their stuff online. We know that they're taking blood pressure medications. When they come in and they get their blood pressure taken in our office, it's sky high. And we're like, okay, so what's the story on your blood pressure medication? And their doctors moved their dose 15 times. They can't figure out out. It's not getting better. They have issues. And so we know it's uncontrolled and it's not being helped. But one of the things that, that can be problematic for people when they need to take, you know, an antihistamine, they're reaching for this. They've got an allergy. They, they want to, they want to, or they're congested and they want to take this decongestant rather. They take something that contains uh, pseudoephedrine and there's blood pressure skyrockets. I mean, this causes high blood pressure emergencies. Like people have to go to the hospital for this stuff, right? So it there's a big threat for that. And I don't think people realize that something quote unquote safe because it's over the counter can create a life or death emergency here, right? And another thing that they do is they cause urinary problems in males over 50 years of age. It can cause insomnia. They can cause nervousness, cause your heart rate to increase, cause heart attack, cause heart palpitations. And then, so if this is the kicker, if we take this stuff, if you take nasal sprays for longer than three days, you can create this vicious cycle of rebound congestion. Basically, the congestion gets worse after you stop taking the decongestant because your nasal passages are so dependent on the drug. I mean, there are tons of people that I know that are on things like Afrin or some other nose spray, and they take it over and over and over again. It's just this rebound. It's just this vicious cycle. They can't survive without it. They try to not take it. it get, they get really congested again. They take the stuff again. It's the same process, right? So now we're taking a decongestant indefinitely. It just never stops. 
So what can we do instead? What can we do instead of taking um, a decongestant? Maybe we can try things like um, a warm compress, right? We put a warm pack over our sinuses or use like a, a wet a washcloth with warm water and, and, and hold it over your sinuses to help relieve sinus pressure. People's sinuses will drain. They, they open up, you know. Hot shower with essential oils is another one that works very well. I tell a lot of people, hey, go and get in the shower, turn the shower up super hot. You don't have to have the water going on you. You know, it doesn't have to burn your skin. You can turn the nozzle and spray it up against the wall and turn that shower up to where it's super hot, gets you some some uh, some essential oils, va- they'll, they'll vaporize in there, and then you can inhale that. Things like uh, eucalyptus or peppermint are great options to help open up the sinuses. Um, and another one is warm tea and soup. When it's soup season, it's always it's always funny. You know, invite your family over and serve them all soup. By the time they get halfway through the the meal, everyone's reaching for a Kleenex. They're sniffing. They're, they're all there. Everybody's sitting there going, <laughs> just trying to keep their nose from running. Every it happens to everyone. It's because we bend over that that hot steaming bowl of soup, and it's just it's opening up our sinuses. Those are things that can be great to help decongest you and. They're safe for everyone. Try them. Give it a whirl if if you're someone who is taking a, a lot of decongestants. It's just... Yeah. You can also do sinus rinses. Uh, oh, yeah. Sinus know, rinses. Which uh, can help. Either uh, neti pot or the there are um, saline washes. Yeah. You got to be careful with those. You got to make sure if you're going to use those, you got to make sure that your water is is clean. Do not use tap water. Right. Do, Definitely do, do not use tap water. The, the, don't do that. Make sure you're using a, a, a bottled water. And clean. we say that because um, some of you may have heard the, you know, there have been reports in the news of people, you know, uh, you know, having, you know, even dying, haven't there? Like, oh, yeah. Get a brain eating amoeba because you did a neti pot. Neti pot. And so some people think, you know, oh, well, those are horrible things to do. They're not. You just have to be careful about the water. It's the water that's the problem, not the sinus rinse. Yes, that is that is correct. That we don't have the cleanest water. So huh. imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. That's why we filter our water. And I highly recommend those. Um. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about proton pump inhibitors. We've talked about proton pump inhibitors on this show. Um, it is th- those things have just became over-the-counter medications recently. And what's what's crazy is that they are the mo- one of the most widely used over-the-counter medications for any kind of stomach upset. But they come with a laundry list of adverse effects. I mean, everybody thinks, oh, I have heartburn. I have too much acid in my stomach. That is not really true. Most people, it's not that they have too much acid in their stomach. It's that they have too little acid in their stomach. And that's what's creating the issue. And I know that's counterintuitive to you. And you know, maybe out there being like this, TJ doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. He's crazy. It's I'd actually do know what I'm talking about. Very few people actually make too much hydrochloric acid. A lot of people make too little. Um, then that when you don't make enough hydrochloric acid, it changes the function of the the esophageal sphincter, this little sphincter that, that is, separates the esophagus and the stomach, and it becomes a little more loose. You know, we're we're a society that two thirds of us are either obese or overweight. 
and that causes, and we sit all hunched over when we eat, and so that creates this crazy amount of intra-abdominal pressure, which pushes this food back up into our into our esophagus and creates a problem. And so therefore we try to take an antacid. If you're having to take an antacid every single day, you have a problem. Find someone, find a functional medicine practitioner that can identify what the issue is for you and and resolve that problem. If you're having to take it once a week, you know, even once a month, like there's something going on. You need to figure out what the problem is. Right. So there there are a lot of side effects to these these proton proton pump inhibitors they actually stop our 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 body's own stomach acid production they reduce the acidity of the of the food and that allows more microbes to to grow and they these microbes get into the small intestine and we end up with things like um, SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth right they change how our gut microbiome is. They change the composition of it. They shift it from something that's very beneficial to us to something that is not. We increase uh, potential pathogenic uh, bacteria in our gut. Things like Clostridium difficile or Campylobacter, we increase our risk of pneumonia with this stuff because this stuff pushes back up into our esophagus. We we cough a little bit. This stuff gets into our lungs and we, we end up with irritation in our lungs and next thing you know, we have pneumonia. I mean, we, we cause... Chronic liver. When we're taking proton pump inhibitors, we can we can increase our our risk of chronic liver disease because we increase Enterococcus bacteria. It's a specific strain of bacteria. These things travel from the gut to the liver and create problems. They cause when this happens, they cause the liver to get inflamed, and we can re- increase our risk of developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We're creating liver damage, right? Proton pump inhibitors cause nutrient deficiencies. If you're changing the acid level of your stomach, it's supposed to be extremely acidic. If you're changing that, you're changing how your body is is functioning from a from a, a nutritional absorption level. You change the acid level. The, the, the stomach and the small intestine are working in this symbiotic relationship with the, with the pancreas and the gallbladder and your stomach acid. And these things are all coming together in harmony to cause the body to, to have this very acidic food move into the small intestine, get hit with these buffers of, of bile and pancreatic juices that release these chemical compounds and these, these hormonal things take place to cause us to release the nutrients from the food. And it's this whole orchestra of things that's going on to allow you to extract the nutrients from your body to be able to then absorb them and utilize them. And you're changing the pH of this stuff in your stomach before any of that stuff can happen, and you don't absorb food the way you're supposed or nutrients the way you're supposed to because you don't allow for this change in pH, this sudden this sudden increase in pH and these hormones to be released to cause us to extract the nutrients. It doesn't happen. Well, and that's, you know, one of the main things that, you know, is an issue with medications in general is we don't look down the chain, right? I mean, we look at, you know, this one problem and think, okay, at this very, you know, precise place, what can we do to relieve the symptom, which is, you know, heartburn generally um, when we're talking about PPIs. And so you take a proton pump inhibitor, you decrease the heartburn but there's this whole cascade of 
problems that are caused from this one medication. And that's why we've hit on PPIs a number of times on our show, because it's a very big deal. And and so many people are taking them. I mean, we're talking about driving deficiencies in vitamin B12, magnesium, iron, calcium. Well, really pick a mineral, right? Vitamin C are all extremely common in people that are taking proton pump inhibitors. You just change your body's ability to absorb. It just doesn't happen. All right, we've got to take a break. When we come back, we're going to we're going to continue talking about proton pump inhibitors for a little bit. You're listening to Wellness 101. I'm packed and I'm holding. I'm smiling. She lives. She golden. She lives for me. Says she lives for me. Ovation. Who own motivation? She comes out and she goes down with me. And I make you smile. And welcome back to the show, everyone. If you're just tuning in, um, today we're talking about uh, safety of over-the-counter medications, and um, the, we've been talking about proton pump inhibitors um, right before the break. And I was talking about how they decrease the absorption of nutrients, and so you end up with deficiencies in things like B12 and lots of minerals. And in fact, they affect magnesium and calcium absorption so much that this is the biggest reason that there's a significantly increased risk of osteoporosis when when people are taking proton pump inhibitors. We see it a lot. Uh, people that come in that have their bone density is just pitiful. And it's, they've been on a, a proton pump inhibitor for 15, 20 years. It's, this stuff is not meant to be taken long term. I mean, not to mention, there are neurologic side effects to proton pump inhibitors. And I don't think people realize this. I mean, we're seeing increasing rates of Alzheimer's disease, but nobody's saying, oh yeah, by the way, uh, the side effect of a proton pump inhibitor is is all of these neurologic problems. Well, when you, there, there's a link between an increased risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease and taking PPIs. The research is already linking this. Regular right. users of proton pump inhibitors have a 44% increased risk of dementia compared to those who don't use it, right? They do this because they increase the the body's um, depositing these amyloid beta plaques. And these are these malformed proteins that are in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. So they basically, these proton pump inhibitors up inhibitors upregulate these enzymes that produce the amyloid beta, which reduces the activity of how these lysosomes, these things that break down these proteins. So we're increasing production and we're stopping our ability to, de- to, to, to break them down. That's, that's a problem. And then we end up with plaques being deposited in the brain. They also interact with these, um, these things called tau proteins, T-A-U, like the, the, the Greek letter tau, tau proteins, which these tau proteins are part of neurofibrillary tangles. I'll get it out eventually. Um, these neurofibrillary tangles accumulate inside neurons and they, they impair neuron functioning in people that have Alzheimer's disease. This is what they do. It, this is a big deal, especially when we're seeing these increasing these increasing rates of of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. People need to know right. that this is a danger because I and it's not something that people think about until you know they get that sort of diagnosis, right? I mean, people don't think about first of all proton pump inhibitors having these extreme side effects. 
But they also, you know, most people aren't concerned about their risk for Alzheimer's and dementia. We don't think about it until it actually happens or happens to someone that we really care about. And all of a sudden we're, you know, we find out that there's this link between the two. It's a big deal. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, all of these, we've, we've talked about several over-the-counter medications on this show. Here's another one. It impacts cardiovascular health and our cardiovascular system, right? Number one dis- uh, cause of death in this country is heart disease. And here we go. Proton pump inhibitors are associated... If if you're taking a proton pump inhibitor after having a heart attack, it's associated with a 30% increased risk of cardiovascular death, another heart attack, or a stroke. Using Just simply using proton pump inhibitors is associated with an increased risk of stroke and heart failure. These proton pump inhibitors, they cause cardiovascular dysfunction because they reduce nitric oxide. Nitric oxide promotes the blood vessels dilating, which is very good for blood flow. It decreases it decreases um, uh, blood pressure, right? But it also increases this stuff called ADMA, which is a byproduct of how we metabolize arginine, right? And then that causes damage to the to the function of the inner lining of the blood vessels, that's problematic. This is this is how we end up with with cardiovascular disease, right? And then we lower levels of B12 and, and vitamin C. We decrease our body's ability to get rid of this stuff called homocysteine, which is like sandpaper going through your arteries and veins, creates all kinds of damage and 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 vascular inflammation. So it's these things are very bad for for our overall heart health. Then they they just they increase our risk of serious illness and death just by taking them. You by, by taking a proton pump inhibitor, you increase your risk of chronic kidney disease, gastric cancer, and colon cancer. It's a 20 to 50% increase for chronic kidney disease when you use proton pump inhibitors. And we see tons of people in our office that have kidney disease. They don't even know that they have it. Right. They have no idea that they're in stage four kidney failure. They have no clue. There are five stages, by the way. They have no clue that they're in stage four because their doctors told them, no, everything's fine. You're looking good. Because there's nothing they can do about it. Right. right. There's absolutely nothing that they have for it. They increase they, they increase gastric and colon cancer because they raise the pH of the stomach. That causes us our body to make this hormone called gastrin, which causes our stomach to create to make to, to make acid. So then we're trying to overproduce acid, and then we create you know polyps and 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 hyperplasia in the in the cells of our colon, and we end up with 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 cancers because of that. I. It, they're just not meant to be used long term. There are some there are some serious side effects to using these things long term, and I mean, what's sad is say you figured out okay, I'm, these things are creating problems. I'm going to stop taking them. Once you stop taking them, you've still created. You still have issues. They they've elevated the pH of the stomach. They cause these these cells to make gastrin. Once you have the gastrin up, it causes your your proton pumps to to cr- try to create larger amounts of, of stomach acid. 
and then you end up with worse reflux after the fact because it's called this it's called this phenomenon called rebound reflux and then we have this hard to break cycle because you have rebound reflux so you want to take a a, a, a proton pump inhibitor to to make the gastric the the reflux go away and then it further perpetuates the whole cycle right and it's i mean it's the same way with so many when I mean, we've talked about other drugs on here before i mean a lot of migraine medications are that way where they they you know start causing rebound headaches or you know a lot of pain medicine um, actually changes the way that our body perceives pain. And so if you quit taking them, then the pain seems worse. Um, so it's the same thing, except that these are available over the counters, which makes it even scarier. And I think that, you know, people don't think of them as being a problem and they can cause huge issues down the line. And here's the here's another kicker for all of you women out there that are that are pregnant. There is evidence that adverse effect of proton pump inhibitors can pass from moms to babies. Yikes. Yikes. So what can we do instead? Instead of taking proton pump inhibitors, what are some things that we can do? How about we identify and fix the underlying problem? Like I said before, many times acid reflux, heartburn is not from too little stomach acid or from too too much stomach acid. It's from too little stomach acid. It happens because we have this increased intradominal pressure, right? That's happens because we have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which has been caused by the fact that we don't have enough stomach acid. So we have this overgrowth in our in, in our small intestine, which creates this back pressure, right? So let's figure out how to fix that. We fix that by doing things like eating a low-carb diet, right? If you have SIBO, decreasing the amount of carbohydrates you consume can help that. Maybe even you use a, a low FODMAP diet, Right, and if you if you're not familiar with the FODMAP diet, look it up. It's F O D M A P. Um, we've talked about it on this show before. I'm not going to get into it, but when you go onto a low FODMAP diet, you 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 can help decrease the bacterial overgrowth that's going on. You can allow the beneficial bacteria to 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 reclaim their territory. So that's something that you can do. You can improve stomach acid production. Right, you can do things like take digestive enzymes that have hydrochloric acid in them. Right, you can you can you know be careful if you're taking you know if you if you want to take hydrochloric acid, you got to remember you got to be careful if you're taking things like aspirin or corticosteroids or ibuprofen because they can cause gut bleeding. So we've got we've got to pay attention to that. So maybe you need to bring a functional medicine practitioner on board with you to help you navigate this stuff because there are side effects. But then there's there are things like bitter herbs, things like dandelion, um, yellow dock, apple cider vinegar. That's a huge one. Lemon juice is another one. These things can help promote gastric acid production. So it helps your stomach make acid to you can to you can to where you can digest these these foods, right? And then feed your good bacteria. We're all about feeding our gut bacteria. You can do this with with various supplements. You can do this with fermented foods, probiotics, bone broth, gelatin. There are a lot of different things that you can do to help with the reflux and and fix that stuff naturally. Right. And and really the issue with, you know, I mean, giving alternatives for proton pump inhibitors, um, you know, unlike some of the other medications that we've discussed, there aren't, you know, we can't give you something else that's going to lower the acid because that's not what is going to actually fix you, right? Um, so while I think on some of the other medications we've said, you know, well, you know, the best thing is to 
find the root of the problem. But here are some things you can do in an acute case. Um, you kind of just have to fix the cause of the problem in this case. Yeah. That's, I mean, you don't really have an alternative. So, um, you know, this is one that you really need to get to the root of it. But, you know, we've kind of given you a few steps here that you can do on your own without having to even find a practitioner. Yeah. All right. We got to take a break. Um, when we come back, we're going to finish up the show and we're going to talk a little bit about antihistamines. You're listening to Wellness 101. You're listening to Wellness 101, brought to you by the Institute of Natural Health. For more information, visit them online at theinstituteofnaturalhealth.com or by phone 314-293-8123. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, today on the show, we've been talking about over-the-counter medications, and we just finished up talking about proton pump inhibitors. And now we're gonna we're gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about antihistamines. Um, I think I think everyone basically has taken an antihistamine at some point in their in their life, especially this time of year. Yeah, especially <laughs> in the springtime. I mean. Everybody complains um, about their their allergies and 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 stuffy nose and and runny nose and all that stuff. But I mean, if we if we look at the numbers for antihistamines, the 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 total sales of antihistamines is almost seven billion dollars a year. I mean, it's a very very popular over the counter medication. It wasn't very long ago that some of these antihistamines actually became over the counter medications. But they, like everything else, they're not really harmless, right? There is a study that showed that the the regular use of these things um, is associated with increased risk of dementia. This is another thing. I mean, we're watching increase. We're watching rates of dementia go up. Do is it? possible that it's because these things are now over the counter and everybody can go and get them and they don't have to go see their doctor to get a prescription for this stuff? I don't know. I don't know. But it it makes me wonder, it makes me think, huh, I wonder what that's about. I don't really uh, I don't really understand. I mean, Benadryl is an extremely popular antihistamine, but there are animal studies out there that show that it impairs memory consolidation, which is how our body processes memories and how they're stabilized after we acquire the information. So this is a, this is kind of a big deal because it's it's affecting how you remember things long term, right? So if you need antihistamines, what do you do? What are some natural things that you can do or some other options that you can that you can choose instead of instead of, you know, reaching for the Benadryl? There are a lot of them out there. Um, we'll we'll cover a few of them here. Quercetin is one. Quercetin is a flavonoid. Um, it's in foods like kale, onions, apples. Um, there's several fruits and vegetables that it's in. But it's a very natural antihistamine, and it doesn't have side effects. There are quite a few um, uh, like dietary supplements, um, natural supplements that, can, that are, you know, quote, antihistamines. Most of them are blends, and almost all of them contain quercetin. That's how popular right. and free of side effects quercetin is. Um, another antihistamine is vitamin C. Basically, it, what vitamin C does is it physically breaks apart the structure of the histamine we molecule. Love vitamin C. Vitamin C is <laughs> awesome. I mean, it just comes in and says, oh, there's histamine. Let's rip you apart to where you're not a problem. 
That's literally how it works in a nutshell. Right. And there are different ways that you can take vitamin C, obviously. Um, you know, a lot of people take it in pill form. We're huge fans of liposomal vitamin C because it's a great way to get increased absorption above, uh, you know, just a pill. A pill. Um, but we also are huge fans of intravenous vitamin C. I mean, we talk about that a lot. And it's a, I mean, there's so many benefits to vitamin C. It just, you know, the, uh, its effect with, you know, the histamines are just one of the many benefits. Yes. Raw honey is another one. Um, if you can get local raw honey, it can really help because it suppresses um, IgE-mediated hypersensitivity. So we have all these different types of immune globulins in our body, and IgE is the one that is responsible for like a histamine reaction or an anaphylactic reaction. So like if someone gets uh, eats a peanut and their head swells up, um, because they have a severe peanut allergy, that's an IgE-mediated um, sensitivity reaction. And things like raw local honey can help you. It helps by desensitizing you to the to the um, pollens and things that are out there in the air that are creating the the need for an antihistamine. Um, and it needs to be local. You need it with within your area. You don't want to be eating raw honey from, you know. Seattle, Washington, if you live in Boca Raton, Florida, it's not going to work for you, right? Um, but it's it's something that's that's great. Improving gut health is another one. So getting people's gut health back in line, we, we've done this hundreds of times in the clinic. People will come into us in you know the fall. They'll say, "Yeah, I have seasonal allergies." In the springtime, it's crazy, and we start working with them, and we we do some things, and we we help them heal and seal their gut. Maybe they've got some gut damage, and then we roll back around to spring, and in a visit, they're like, "You know what? I've noticed. I don't have to take Claritin, or I don't have to take um, Benadryl, or I don't have to take pick a pick a a, a medication." that is for allergies, they don't have to take it anymore. And they're like, why is that? And so then we explain to them, well, we've healed and sealed your gut. So that's allowed us to to decrease your sensitivity to these, these allergens um, because we've increased the healthy levels of bacteria in your gut. And they they love it. They, they absolutely love it. Right. And you can also, um, you know, any pregnant ladies out there, you kind of know, uh, because we hear this all the time, uh, your allergy symptoms, if you're pregnant during the spring, are probably worse, right? And it's kind of the same thing with gut health is when your immune system is somewhat depressed because of the pregnancy, you're more likely to have, uh, you know, allergies, you know, be affected by allergies um, during that time period. So it's kind of the same thought that if we can boost your immune system and bo- boost your gut health, which is a huge part of that, and we talk about that a lot on the show, I know, because they're so intimately connected um, you can see a huge improvement in, uh, you know, any sort of seasonal allergy symptoms you might have. Right. Um, and then lastly, get rid of, of SIBO. So small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, I mean, it can contribute to al- allergies because it triggers this increased histamine production. And it's these histamines that create an issue. So if we're able to restore the gut microbiome, with you know, with probiotics, with with um, you know, calming things down and, and getting things deflamed, right, and repopulating the gut, 
we can use things like um, bifido and lactobacillus species that can treat this SIBO to relieve these allergic symptoms, right? Getting fermentable fiber in um, that that helps the gut bacteria metabolize these these things. You can it allows you to make this this product or this substance called butyrate, which helps the whole body um, suppress immune responses and especially those that are involved in 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 allergies. This butyrate stuff it, it helps reduce intestinal permeability, um, among other things. So there's these are some things that you can do. Um, naturally that can can decrease your need for antihistamines. And that is about all the time we have for today's show. Um, if you want more information, visit our website, theinstituteofnaturalhealth.com. Call us, 314-293-8123. Feel free to email us, shoot us a message, follow us on Facebook, Instagram. We post stuff all the time, like, comment, share. Um, we find our podcast on on iTunes, subscribe, send it to other people that you know. Um, We appreciate it. Um, Just get the information out there. So that's all we have for today. For Aaron, I'm Dr. TJ. Thanks for listening. Wellness 101 has been brought to you by the Institute of Natural Health, your destination for functional medicine in St. Louis. For more information, visit them online at theinstituteofnaturalhealth.com or by phone 314-293-8123. Coming back into you once I'm thinking it out You're right here